Hey there, Hugo Bown Anderson here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. Today, I'm super stoked to be speaking with James J.D. Long. J.D. is an agricultural economist, quant, and stochastic modeler, in addition to being an avid user of Python, R, AWS, along with colorful metaphors. He is also the co-author of the R cookbook and a born raconteur. So this is part two of a two-part conversation in which JD and I delve into decision-making under uncertainty and how we can use our knowledge of risk, uncertainty, probabilistic thinking, causal inference, and more to help us use data science and machine learning to make better decisions in an uncertain world. Feel free to check out part one, which I've linked to in the show notes, but this episode should stand alone also. So why am I speaking with JD about all of this? Well, because not only is he a wild conversationalist with a real knack for explaining hard-to-grok concepts with illustrative examples and useful stories, but JD has worked for many years in reinsurance. That's right, not insurance, but reinsurance. These are the people who insure the insurers. So if anyone can actually tell us about risk and uncertainty in decision-making, it better be him. So in part one, we discussed risk, uncertainty, probabilistic thinking, and simulation, all with a view towards improving decision-making. In this, part two, we discuss the ins and outs of decision-making under uncertainty, including how data science can be more tightly coupled with the decision function in organizations, some common mistakes and failure modes of making decisions under uncertainty, heuristics for principled decision-making in data science, and the intersection of model building, storytelling, and cognitive biases to keep in mind. As JD says, and I paraphrase, you may think you train your models, but your models are really training you. So a bit of bookkeeping before we jump in. I'd love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter. At Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. It would be great if you could subscribe to the show on your app of choice. And if you like it, do write us a review on iTunes and or anywhere else. Also, this episode was the first that we recorded as a YouTube live stream, so when we occasionally refer to people commenting in the chat, that's what we're on about. We plan to have more such live streams, and you can subscribe to our channel to keep up to date. The link's in the show notes. I'm your host, Hugo Bound Anderson, and welcome to Vanishing Gradients. So to get into decision-making now, which is very, very exciting, I think we're bringing it, really bringing it now to one of the big reasons we're here. I do want to start off by mentioning how it can relate to probabilistic thinking as well. And I actually want to reference what you know is a podcast episode, which I'll share in the chat right now. It's an episode with uh, Jim Savage from Schmidt Futures. Jim is one of the smartest and sharpest thinkers I know, which is one of the reasons I had him on, on the podcast. But his, um, I don't know if it's still the case. I think it is. His um, Twitter handle is Abelfoip. Um, Correct. It still which, is. Which is an acronym for always be integrating your loss function over your posterior. Now, I mean, this 
what on earth does that mean? That's fairly that impenetrable to, on yeah, the surface. Yeah, anything we're talking about, right? And already I'm thinking Bayesian inference. I'm like, ah. Oh. But I want to just talk through a brief example, which can help us start thinking about decision-making under uncertainty. So an example Jim gives is a new type of chemotherapy drug where you run an RCT and get a causal estimate of the effect, right? Now, the intervention will be costly to implement. It will be both expensive and painful. The effect has diminishing returns on on welfare, reduces probability of death in the next six months, but no long-range effect on mortality. At the expected, at the point estimate effect size, it seems to make sense, okay? Mm -hmm. So what that means is that your loss function looks pretty good at that effect size, mm -hmm. okay? Now, but that doesn't tell you much about the distribution of possible outcomes, right? So how do you get the distribution of possible outcomes? What you do is look at the probability distribution of the effect size after you incorporate all your modeling and data into it. Now, that's called the posterior distribution. <laughs> Once we've incorporated our modeling and data into everything, we get this posterior distribution, and we want to convolve that in some sense. So we'll look at that at each point in the distribution, multiply that by the loss function or the cost, and figure out then what the, the integral of all that is essentially. So mm -hmm. for those who don't know a lot of calculus, essentially what we're doing there is at each point we're multiplying them and adding it all together to essentially get the average, right, of the estimate weighted. Instead of just looking at the average of the estimate, we're weighting it by all the possible effect sizes in order to make a decision. And I'll link to, well, I have given the episode of the podcast in the YouTube chat. I'll link to it in the show notes for those listening to the podcast itself. But I think this is a nice way to start thinking about decision-making under uncertainty. But I do think it, this would be a nice point to um, speak to Mike Smith's question, because we are talking about making decisions. We're talking about decision-makers who may not be technical or computational. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike asked, how do you communicate model outcomes and predictions to decision-making? And then Mike says, because the danger is that they will hear, computer says no. Right. So let me tell you just like hand-wavy how a lot of professional risk-taking organizations think about this. Now, what I'm not going to do, and we'll get a lot of comments in the podcast and people will crap at me on Twitter or whatever. I'm not going to do that anyway, man. Exactly. That's what I'm there for. And <laughs> But this is going to have some holes in some of this. But conceptually, let's start with this as a simplified framework, knowing that it's a, a limited framework. So what a lot of risk-taking organizations do in order, well, first of all, if we have a financial organization where the outcomes are financial, the integration over the posterior with the loss function becomes easy. And the reason it's easy is they're just numbers. We don't have to do something like turn suckiness of life experience into a metric, right? We just have negative $100 million. It's really easy, right? So this is much easier in a financial trading shop. So I'm going to kind of use that example. So we take the losses and then you have the probability distribution and you can get a probability distribution of losses. So when we integrate our posterior distribution with our loss function, we get a posterior distribution that is in not in dollars. And we can say, okay, we have a 5% chance of losing $100 million. We have a 20% chance of losing $10 million. We have a 30% chance of, you know, and we can do the whole distribution, right? I need mm. not go through the full example. And we have some mean expected return. That's the average. Well, the in the world of finance, they do a thing called risk-adjusted return on capital. 
Ray Rock. It's even got a catchy name. And what we can basically do there is say, okay, well, take your loss at some point in the bad tail. So in your organization could say, okay, let's take the one in 20, the 95th percentile. And we're just going to like get a ratio when we we decide what that potential loss is divided by the expected profit. And there we have a measure of our mean relative to a static point in the tail. And we can compare two deals, ones with a higher mean and a higher loss in the tail, the other one lower mean, but a lower loss in the tail. Well, how do those compare? That ratio between that mean expected profit and the loss out in the tail can begin to help you triangulate on how to think about those two deals relative to each other because we're trying to compare the expected to some downside risk, right? This operation is like covered in undergrad textbooks, right? Mm -hmm. In finance. Great place to start, right? And then you can do interesting stuff like say, oh, what's our return on risk-adjusted return on capital for all of our positions? That's our main portfolio. We've got a new deal we want to do. Oh, economists are all fetishize the margin, right? Making decisions on the margin. Well, we can say, what's the return on capital of this portfolio by itself? And then we can take this deal, put it in there and say, what's the risk-adjusted return on capital after adding that deal in? Ta-da, marginal risk-adjusted return on capital for a single deal, marginal Ray Rock. And that will give you some, then you have some potential set of deals you might put in that portfolio. Well, you can calculate the marginal Ray Rock uh, for those to understand how they might fit in that deal, right? And so that's one way if you're in financial land, you can, if you turn everything into dollar losses, you figure out which point in your tail is interesting to you. There's a big set of assumptions, right? I'm hand waving by which point do you put, that sort of thing. But you can compare your expected to some point in the tail and have some sophistication when you think about adding things to your portfolio or adding risk to the portfolio. Yeah, and of course, in the financial world, there's an obvious metric to use. And part of the challenge is figuring out like what the cost function actually is for any of the work and decisions we're making. So let's jump in to making decisions under uncertainty. What type of mistakes, what are the failure modes of decision-making in an uncertain world? Yeah, so my favorite mistake is the low-frequency decision and drawing conclusions on the outcome. So an example of this might be, uh, you know, my father who used to farm and before he retired and he would hedge his corn crop on the Chicago Board of Trade. And sometimes prices would move, you know, in such a way that his hedge made a lot of money and sometimes they would move in such a way that they didn't. And he would draw conclusions on whether he should or shouldn't have hedged that year based on whether or not the hedge make money, right? That is not a sound way of making that decision, right? Just whether or not the outcome is favorable is called outcome bias. Saying this or resulting, was a decision, right? Or resulting, right? So yeah, now we're in the world of, of gambling and, and yep. we're going to steal some gambling words, right? So the, yep. the, the next bit of this conversation is going to become like an Annie Duke love fest because Hugo and I both are huge fan of Annie Dukes. And she wrote a uh, book called Thinking in Bets. Mm -hmm. And she introduced me to this term resulting in that book, which is where gamblers decide whether or not they make a good bet on the outcome of the bet. Well, that's not 
the right measurement, right? So if I went to Hugo and said, I have this coin, it's 75% of the time comes up heads, 25% of the time comes up tails. Uh, it's an even bet, which side you want, heads or tails, right? He's going to say the side that has 75% probability. Well, mm. that may flip it and it comes up the other. Did he make a bad bet? No, that was the right bet. It just went against him, right? And anytime you're dealing with uncertain outcomes, you may not get the outcome that makes you money. That doesn't mean that your bet was wrong or ill-informed. It was the right bet, wrong outcome. And yeah. if you had to make that bet 100 times, you should make that exact bet every 100 times. <laughs> and something I've just linked to an essay you know that I wrote near the start of COVID around yeah. decision-making in a, a time of crisis and types of things we're, we're talking about. I, I do mention one thing in there. Alan Downey, I wonder if I can find this. He, yeah, he said... If you think the outcome, well, he, we're talking about prediction in this case, and it can be a similar mm -hmm. thing. If you think the outcome means a prediction is wrong, it really means you're treating a prediction as deterministic, not probabilistic. Correct. Right? Not probabilistic. So, Correct. Yeah. And so this thinking, is so common. Yeah. This is built into human nature. We're horrible at thinking probabilistically, aren't we? We really are. So, so you know, my wife has been married to, or she's been at least romantically involved with a professional risk manager for 20 years now. And, and she's also married to you. And she, yeah. <laughs> simultaneously, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? It turns out, yeah. right? And still, sometimes we have had to discuss decisions we were making. And I would observe she was second guessing a decision because it didn't all work out the way she had hoped. Mm. And I'm like, well, if you had to go back and make the decision again, what would you do? And she, oh, I'd have chosen that. I'm like, now, wait a second. You're saying that because you saw the outcome. What did you, and I'll ask questions like, what did you know, have any of that information at the time? And she'll often be like, no, no, I, I mean, I couldn't have known that. And like, yeah, let's go back over what information did we have at the time? And we'll review the decision making. We'll come to the conclusion of given the information that was available to us that we had or any that we could get, we made the optimal decision. Sometimes it just doesn't turn out right. Let me tell you a story real quick of one that did turn out great. And it was the exact opposite of this. Oh, not the opposite. It was one where I didn't have any information. So in 2019, we elected to leave uh, New York City. Uh, we were living in New Jersey, just across the Hudson from Manhattan. And we moved back to Richmond, Virginia. The reason we moved back is we had some family issues with my mother-in-law needing a little more help. We didn't really like the school options for our kid where we were. It was going to be really difficult to get her in the type of middle school and high school that we wanted. That was easy in Richmond, Virginia. My mother-in-law was here in Richmond, Virginia. So we work it out with my work and we moved back to Richmond, Virginia. And then the pandemic hit. Mm. Well, we, I knew, knew that I would be working one or two days a week remote when we bought our house. So I bought a house with the nicest home office I have ever had. And we had no way to knowing right around the corner was COVID and I would be effectively living in that office and I'd be working in there full time. And in New York, New Jersey, we were living in a small condo. And because we moved into the suburbs of Virginia, we had a much bigger house with a, you know, a basketball hoop in the driveway for the kid to play basketball. And it was a much better situation for us to ride out COVID. Oh, in addition, the condo facility we left, it turned out like the month after we left, they discovered stru structural problems in the parking garage and assessed everybody wow. thousands of dollars, right? Great like decision. Have, <laughs> great yeah, decision, JD. Freaking brilliant. No, yeah. it was 
absolute luck, right? Like the only thing in this whole process of decision-making that we could have said we did well is after we had enough information to know it's time to make a decision, we made a decision. That's the Mm. only thing we did well. And it broke our way. And we ended up riding out COVID in a much better situation than if we had still been in in the New York area, right? Absolutely had like nothing to do on what about whether that was the right decision or not. It was just happy, positive luck. Amazing. And I, I also was going to ask, I mean, as your wife and yourself have been romantically involved for so long, I thought yeah. maybe you moved there because as we all know, Virginia it's is for lovers. lovers. Yeah. I've got my, I can't quite reach it with my headset on. I got my Virginia's for lover cap right over there. Yeah, the, and I actually used the, the photo of it to promote this, of, of you in that hat to promote this event as well. So I love it. At our wedding, we gave out, we had a very small family wedding at the Jefferson Hotel here in Richmond, Virginia. So we were married here in, in Richmond and we gave out coffee mugs and pencils and something else at all the place settings at dinner that had the Virginia's for lovers logo on them. Cause that was like the tourism logo for yeah. uh, Virginia for years and years. So those were our, our things we passed out. So that's how I ended up with that hat still is my wife saw it and got it for me. And amazing. Uh, I don't think it's the tourism logo anymore, but it has stuck around for so long Yeah, uh, because it's so appealing. Totally. And of course, Kim Cressman just wrote, I thought you wanted to be closer to Kentucky bourbon, which is probably <laughs> well, also that, at least partially true. true. Yeah. At that, that's um, true as well. So that was an example from your personal life, which I think is very illustrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but you and I are both aware, and Annie Duke is as well. I mean, she, in thinking bets, I'm just reading verbatim, she asked business executives to write down their best and worst decisions of the past year, and they invariably wrote down the best and worst outcomes. Um, Absolutely. Have you seen this play out in business? Yeah, let me give you an anti-example of this. I actually watched this play out in real time right after I read Thinking in Bets. So in retrospect, this must have been 2017, 2018. It's what I was living in New York. And I listened to a number of earnings calls in my industry and recommend others do likewise, right? You can learn a lot about your industry by listening to the earnings calls where the executives talk about what's going on. And what was interesting is, I think it was 2018, because 2017, it had a bunch of wildfires in the Western part of the US, Mm -hmm. like California. And this was must have been the end of 2018. Because an analyst asked a CEO of a reinsurance company said, 2017 was a bad year for wildfires and you all took losses again in 2018. Do you think it was a bad decision to stay in that market? Was the question the stock analyst asked the CEO. And I was like, oh man, we're about to find out a little if somebody thinks in terms of resulting, right? And that CEO responded on that earnings call said, no, it wasn't a bad decision. Our playbook in these situations is we look at the science. If the science and the conditions around the risk have not changed and all that changed was a bad outcome, we have seen disproportionate opportunities in the past to stay in markets and Mm. often have higher returns because other participants pull out after bad events. We stay in if the conditions and the science haven't changed, because we don't think the underlying risk distribution has changed materially, we stay in. And we typically make increased profits by staying in those markets when everybody else pulls out. And I was like, oh, wow, like that is the anti-resulting. 
right? Mm -hmm. That is saying, we don't think the distribution, we literally said something to the effect of, we don't think the underlying distribution or risk has changed. Therefore, we liked it before, we should like it now at a higher price, right? A higher price on risk. And I thought that was so telling because the analyst really was setting them up for outcome bias. Like the mm. way the question was asked and everything was sort of just like, I'm going to softball. Don't you think you should have done something different? And the CEO was like, no, given the information we had, this was the right decision. Now, he went on to say, we need to do that analysis again to see if we think there might be things that have changed that we couldn't see last year. And now that we've had two year of losses, what did we miss? And we will do that analysis. Right. So didn't commit to stay in. Like I'm not just blindly staying into this. I have a metric for what I'm going to stay, which markets I'm going to stay in. And we're going to analyze and see if we fit that metric. And if so, we'll stay in that market. And I yeah. thought that was so interesting because it was just not, I think, the way, well, clearly based on Andy Duke's research, it's not the way most people, even business executives, think. Totally. And I do want to move into what should we be taking into account when making decisions under uncertainty, but I do want to split it. I mean, the example you just gave, there was a bunch of uncertainty, right? right. As well as risk. Right. Whereas where, I mean, any one of the reasons we looked at people like Annie Duke, not only because she's fantastic and sharp, but also she was a like a, a stellar poker player, right? Yeah, I think and she was top four women in professional poker in terms of earnings, life yeah, earnings. Exactly. So and she hadn't even and, played in 10 years. Exactly. And so, but in poker, of course, you know, there are a bunch of cultural human dynamics at, at play, which I don't, you know, even claim to understand. But in poker, you you can write down the tables. So it's all risk. Right. There's no uncertainty, right. Right? right? So I suppose what are the, what type of ways do you think about making decisions under uncertainty, under risk? And how should we be thinking about all of these things? So let me throw one little, let me push back just slightly on the poker thing. There is a modicum of uncertainty, and that is your fellow players. You aren't mm. playing a blind game that's completely driven by the cards. You're mm -hmm. playing a game that's partially the cards and right. partially how the other people at the table are playing those cards. That piece is uncertain. And yes. um, I just recently listened to an interview with Stephen Levitt of Freakonomics mm -hmm. and Annie Duke. And it was cool. Um, the people I mostly admire is the podcast. That's Levitt's podcast. And one of the things that Annie Duke went through in that podcast was the way other players would react to her and how she would effectively take advantage of them mm. because of their biased decision making. A lot of it having to do with machismo machismo, sorry, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I'm going to bully this woman around. And she's like, yep. anytime they play with basically any objective other than to respond to the cards, I can take advantage of them by being calm and understanding their bias. Yeah, And she'd eat their lunch, right? Because she would understand that they weren't making the rational play. They were making a play that was in, in order to try to bully her, her around or try to intimidate her or whatever, right? And mm. She's like, I would just use that as opportunity to play against them and take advantage of their bias. They would be just right. be introducing bias, right? I thought that was great. Now, let's go. So there's a modicum of uncertainty. Now, she, what she did was she was good and skilled at figuring out what was going on with the individuals to turn that uncertainty into understanding mm. about 
risk, right? Now, to me or you, it would probably be just randomness. I, I couldn't interpret what somebody else is doing at a table, yep. right? And how it's impacting their play. So, and so, but let's be clear, and this is something I hope to get to soon. She's essentially building a model, a mental model. Right. She's absolutely building a model. And she has model, assumptions right? in there and there's data mm -hmm. coming in. And, and she's updating and it with more information, yep. right? Exactly. All right. Now, where were we going from there? I got so, myself all sidetracked. <laughs> heuristics or rules of thumb or ways to think about making decisions under uncertainty. Oof. Oof. Good set of questions. Okay. So when I think about, okay, the problem with the whole outcome bias thing is typically like we look at one risky decision and one outcome. And we start mm -hmm. drawing conclusions, right? So we've got what I always call square root n problem in that our confidence bands collapse with the square root of our sample size. So we mm -hmm. got a sample size of one. So we don't have very good collapsing error bars around that. So we, we can't tell much from one about the decision-making process, but we can tell a few things. We can ask ourselves or other people or our partner, did we integrate all the information we had? And so were we filtering information and not letting it into the decision-making process? That's basically saying, did we have information we didn't respond to? That's mm -hmm. one. Was there information that we could have gotten and should have known to get, but we didn't? And so that's like step two. And now what we're beginning to talk about is, well, how do we build a framework for decision or a system for decision-making under uncertainty. And I think about it like, what did we know? What could we have known that we couldn't have access to? But we got to be careful with those because we can just have, you know, hindsight bias. So if we had 30 points of information pointing in one direction and one piece of information that we didn't think was reliable pointing another, and it turned out that was the more reliable information, well, don't do hindsight bias and say that, well, we should always value Aunt Bessie's premonitions no. Because Aunt Bessie had a premonition about this decision. No, that's still not good information, even if it happened to be right one time in hindsight. So we got to be careful with this evaluation. The, one of the things I like to do, and I do this at, at work by design, is I make notes and log notes when we make decisions tremendously valuable to know what was I thinking and what pieces of information did I have at the decision point. And it allows you to go back and evaluate, right? And so I'm going back and evaluating and realizing like in one situation, there was a piece of information I actually knew and I didn't put it in the notes. So I wasn't thinking about it at the time and it burned me. And all right, note to self. And I also actually shared it with the team of, I think I overlooked this piece of information. We should learn from this. This is an important piece of information in these type of decisions. So having a you know decision-making log of some kind, my wife <laughs> laughs at me because occasionally I will write her an email saying, okay, here's the set of decision we were doing and what we were thinking. What I'm doing is I'm writing her an underwriting note. And that's mm. what we would call it in my day job, the underwriting note explaining the decision making, what went into it, why, what our thoughts were. Uh, but I'll do it more as a conversation email to her, more so we can remind ourselves what we were thinking at a given time. Incredibly, incredibly useful. So... And then we try to get more larger in. So we make more decisions over time and we continue this evaluation process. And eventually we don't have all 
decisions that go our way, but we can create a system that produces systematically good decisions. Now, this brings me to my joke about luck versus skill. And it's, I'm not sure if I heard this in the underwriting context or the gambling context, but Hugo, do you know what the difference is between money you make by luck and money you make by skill? Not much. And none. There's no difference between the two. They spend exactly mm. the same. Yeah. Now, that hides the difference between a system that operates on luck and a system that operates on skill in decision Absolutely. making, right? In any one situation, the outcome based on luck, if it goes your way, is fine. If it's based on skill and it still goes your way, that's fine too. And so once again, that's the square root in problem. So if mm. we think about many decisions over time, you want a system that's biased towards being skillful in decisions. And so the kind of the what I outlined about reviewing decisions after action report, if you will, or post decision analysis helps us give feedback into our decision making process to create a system and hopefully a team of people who make better decisions over time. That requires a bunch of stuff that's easy to hand wave. And I'll go ahead and call a few of these out. In order to have a team of people that can evaluate decisions together, you got to have psychological safety, right? Yep. Like I've got to not think you're going to throw me under the bus when I say, sugar, Hugo, we knew we had this piece of information and I was not thinking of that at the decision-making time. I got to make sure we can learn from that and not you give me a crappy review so your bonus is better, right? We've got to be able to have the trust to basically be like, wow, okay, we're going to work together to make sure when we have information like that, it feeds into the decision-making better. So we can, over time, build teams of people that make good decisions, wide-eyed, able to look bad decisions in the eye, able to do after-action reports without blaming people, blameless post-mortems, if you will, and able to get less fragile in their decision-making. So coming back to Taleb, now we're talking about a, a system of people that is anti-fragile. So it gets more robust as it makes more decisions. Mm -hmm. And as there's more and more feedback, it makes better and better decisions, hopefully. That's really what we're after. And we can't evaluate any of this on any one single outcome of one single decision. <clears throat> it's got to be a series of decisions over time, each one with review, with feedback, understanding what we knew, what we didn't know, understanding what we did well, what we'll do better next time. And you got to be able to grow over time. If you do that, you can create a system that produces better outcomes. Are there still going to be things that are going to go against you? Absolutely. Right? Like, because once again, we're not turning a probabilistic system into a deterministic one. We're trying to figure out how to get the most of the probabilistic information we have into our decision-making to make a probabilistically sound, but not deterministic decision. Exactly. And so to reflect one of the key points in there, that we want to look at the long-run frequency of decision-making and hopefully see that improve over time in terms of good decisions being made. Yeah, but um, not necessarily good outcomes, right? So a good decision mm -hmm. is evaluated by the inclusion of the information, not the outcome that came from that. Because if we're talking about decisions where you've only, like you're making the decision 60%, 40%, you're still going to have lots and lots of 40% of the time that's going to go against you. Absolutely. I think my point was that 
if you evaluate the outcome over long run frequencies, good decision makers will make will result in good outcomes more often. That seems fair. In a long run, yeah. probabilistic. If frequency. you get enough, if you get enough in, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And this is a point that um, I'll direct people to Philip Tetlock's Good Judgment Project and his book Super Forecasting, when he goes through a lot of ways to heuristics, making robust predictions and the type of characteristics of people who can do that as well. And constant updating is one of them. Sure. But he he makes clear that when judging predictive power, you really want to be looking at long run frequencies of predictors. And mm -hmm. that a lot of the predictions we see in media, for example, there's a misalignment of incentives, right? So people will Absolutely. be more heard, get more clicks, get more revenue, even pre-clicks, get more airtime based on being very strongly opinionated and perhaps being wrong after the fact, but then they move on to the next prediction as opposed to having being, let's say, more humble or expressing more uncertainty around their prediction. And thinking about incentives of, of talking about predictions is fascinating. I have heard, once again, this may be apocryphal, that let's say the meteorologists see that it's 50-50 chance of rain tomorrow. That on average, they'll actually say it's a 60% chance of rain because they don't want to seem like they're sitting on the fence. No one believes you if you're sitting on the fence. And they've seen that people will be happier if they think there's a slightly larger chance of rain and then they see a sunny day. Yeah. So I got to be careful here because I literally sit in an office with a whole bunch of meteorologists sitting right around the corner from me. So Amazing. Th they will toilet paper my cubicle if I am not respectful. My understanding is like National Weather Service is real stable on theirs. But my understanding is television. That's uh, actually what I meant. Meteorologists yeah, have a slight bias towards calling for rain because it's really twofold. One is people like it if it doesn't, if they're pleasantly surprised, right? This yep. is psychological fact. The other thing is what they think the question people are really asking is, should I take my umbrella and my coat? They think that's what Absolutely. people are really asking. So if you bias just a little heavier towards rain, then you have fewer days where people don't take their umbrella and their coat and they wish they had. Yes. So you sort of, in a way, they're integrating over the posterior, but without anybody's permission. Exactly. <laughs> <They're saying. laughs> they, re they really not are. How they're thinking about. It. Yeah, they are. Right. Fascinating. That's, that's not how they would describe it, but that's what they're doing. They're saying yeah. you're going to regret not taking your coat more than you will regret taking it and not needing it. We know that, so we're going to put our thumb on the scale. In as a result of our integrating your uh, yeah. loss function over the posterior. Right? Exactly. And thank you for that generous correction on your behalf. I definitely did mean weather people, not meteorologists as well. I, I feel like this conversation wouldn't, about weather reporting, wouldn't be complete without mentioning an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm in which the weather human, the weatherman predicts rain with great certainty and Larry's supposed to play golf the next day. And he's like, bugger it, I'm going to go and play golf anywhere. Beautiful day. No one's on the course except for the weatherman. And he goes up to the women and says, I'm on to you. You're predicting rain so you can have the golf course to yourself. That's um, funny. I like that. Yeah. I also just want to talk about risk friendliness and risk aversion. We're talking about yes. decision making as though based on given the same information, mm -hmm. you and I may make the same decision, right? Mm -hmm. There are lots of variables at play. We've talked about the probability or likelihood of certain events occurring. There's also impact. Like if the downside and upside risk can be like disastrous or not, right? So one example that I've discussed with you and I wrote in that essay that I've that I've linked to early on in COVID, my parents were uh, high risk with respect to COVID and I had a negative test and my friends were like, oh, you can go and visit. And I was like, well, let's just be careful. There's a false negative 
right? Which I should take into account. And it's low likelihood that I have COVID now, but think about the impact. It could be fatal. And this was early days in COVID, right? So thinking about not just the likelihood of events, but the impact. Once again, we're doing some form of integration over the posterior. But before that, we're thinking about some sort of risk matrix is what they call in business, right? Where we have likelihood impact and then thinking through risk friendliness and risk aversion. All of these should be taken to an account when making decisions, right? Yeah. So I found myself in a very similar situation during COVID. My wife has really severe asthma. It's under control, but she medicates twice a day to keep her asthma under control. And mm. so it's severe asthma, fortunately controlled. We were very concerned. Well, and beyond that, my parents and my mother-in-law would all be high risk as well. So we were very concerned and we were very concerned about transmission into our household. And so that meant for me and also choice to keep our daughter out of school a little longer than everyone else did. Those mm. were all driven because we felt our, that was not that we felt our, risk was higher. That wasn't really risk aversion. We just felt like our risk function was higher. Other people felt like maybe their immediate household wasn't at under quite the threat that we felt my wife's health would be right? Yeah. if she contracted COVID. So if you had two healthy 40-somethings, your risk is significantly lower than our situation. So we felt we had a different risk profile. Now, Absolutely. on top of that, there's this idea of risk aversion, which makes me go back to, I got to make up, I got to make one of my earlier assertions more sophisticated. Because earlier I talked about how everything's simple in my world in financial services because I turn everything into dollars. And so my integrated posterior distribution is all in dollars. And so I guess we're not, we're multiplying the risk times the dollars of loss. So I can say dollars of loss at every probability point. Well, all of this kind of assumes that losing dollars and gaining dollars of the same amount are offsetting. And what we, we know about psychology and behavioral economics is that may not be the case. A windfall of $10,000 does not make me as happy as a shortfall of $10,000 makes me sad. Absolutely. In effect, it's not symmetrical. So downside has more negativity than the upside has positive. So the way that, let me tell you how this manifests itself in my personal life. Since I'm confiding in you all of these, uh, you know, secrets of my personal household, I actually overwithhold my taxes, which seems nuts for somebody as a, who's an economist to do, right? I'm giving the government a free loan. No, that's not how I think about it. I underheld and I saw the stress that caused my wife when we had a taxes due at the end of the yeah. year. And I'm basically like, I don't want that stress in our collective life again. So I always make totally. sure we get a little refund at the end of the year. Is that financially sound? Is that the best like optimizing dollars? No, but what I'm doing is I'm eliminating the possibility of us having a shortfall and that causing stress in our life because that stresses my wife out. She mm. knows this, right? She knows I do this. This is not a secret revelation to her. And she's like, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> Because <laughs> she Absolutely. knows that to her, that negative downside is way more painful than whatever dollars we're saving by, you know, trying to nail it exactly or whatever, right? So sometimes we discover that the payoff is not symmetrical or mm. that the dollars of loss are not equal to dollar gain. A bunch of that behavioral economics looks into this. This is really simply risk aversion. And yeah, that 
if we integrate under our posterior distribution properly, if we integrate our loss function on the posterior properly, it really wouldn't be just dollars. It would be something like the amorphous units of happiness that economists use called utility. And I would have more negative utility for negative $10,000 than I would have positive utility for positive 10,000, right? I, yep. One would be worse than the other would be good. That's how we might try to capture it. That's hard to do. It's hard to do in practice, but we do see that different individuals have different loss functions in terms of their utility response to loss versus gain. Some people really love gain so much that they're willing to take a lot of loss to get that dopamine hit from the upside, right? Absolutely. Probably some sort of uh, something like that in the brain helps with driving addiction to gambling. Yeah. wonder if um, right? most recent former president of the United States is such an example. I do want to say with the behavioral economic stuff and the risk aversion, a lot of the biases we've been talking around, thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman and Sversky is a wonderful reference, beautiful book on such things. Mark Rieker has also written in the chat with respect to incentives and hot takes that Nate Silver's book, The Signal and the Noise, references a study that actually finds a negative association between pundit takes and outcomes. Yeah, I had not and, and remembered that. And I definitely check that book out for a lot of things we're talking around as well. I actually think about this when hiring also. Mm -hmm. I mean, part of the hiring flow is trying to find signal on performance and the types of things that usually attract us to other humans, I think can be anti-correlated or at least uncorrelated, but a lot of the time anti-correlated with the types of things we really want to find find signal on as, yeah, uh, as well. We could do a whole other podcast on hiring analysts. I have lots of thoughts, probably aren't, aren't, shouldn't get into that here, but it's mm. a really rich topic for discussion of decision-making, heuristics, criteria. Well, we'll definitely have to have you back on the show for that. I am interested when you do hire people, <laughs> all these things we've been talking about seem essential to people's work and the people that you hire, the people you work with, how do you, do you hire people who know everything we're talking about? Or do you, do you have conversations with them on the job? How do you even think about developing a team and a workplace where people know how to judge decisions and make decisions and do analysis and that type of stuff? So I, if we were hiring more senior people, one could imagine you would filter for a lot of this. A lot of my hiring is with relatively junior, so five years or less of experience. And I do not expect any of these things you and I have talked about to be mature in their thinking. I might ask a question to see if they just by luck had happened to think about any of this, but my expectation would not be that they had. What I'm really looking for and what I think a lot about is filtering for demonstrated ability to learn and do things and curiosity, question asking, you know, if somebody comes into and you're like, I kind of liked the, the interviews over video chat and somebody's got board games on the wall. I'm going to ask a lot of questions about board games because they, cool. that may be indicative. It may be indicative of this. They're in their childhood bedroom, or it may be indicative of something really interesting in their thinking, that they really enjoy mm. problem solving, they really enjoy doing things in groups, problem solving in groups, right? If they tell me they're totally. a dungeon master, I'm going to have lots of interesting conversation, right? Like, mm. That's an interesting area. And I'm way over, I would way rather oversolve for curiosity and problem solving ability with a kind of minimal technical threshold. I mean, we've not talked any about 
programming languages, statistic tools, and all that. I've got a bar about here for that. I want some evidence of it, some evidence of having learned some tool. But in terms of exactly the tools I'm using and the way I'm using them, no, I'm not solving for that on a relatively inexperienced hire. That's syntax. If they know how to Google and they know kind of the concept, they can find the answer of how to do that in pandas or how to do mm. that in R, right? They can figure that out. So I'm way more interested in curiosity, problem solving, that sort of thing. Awesome. So I do want to get to some tools maybe when we wrap yeah. up, but I am something we haven't really talked about. Talked a lot about probability, decision-making. We haven't talked about causal inference. And I know mm. your background's in mm -hmm. agricultural economics, as everyone does does now. But when when thinking about decision-making, we are reasoning through causality already, right? right? Like we're thinking, I right. do this, these things may happen. So what's the role of causality and causal inference in thinking through decision-making and making robust decision-making? Yeah. So what's interesting here is a whole bunch of the stuff that I deal with. My day-to-day -day application, I'm not super worried about exactly what causing which range of outcomes as much as I am concerned about what is the range of outcomes. Mm. And then often I have very weak causality. And I do know I want, like if I'm discussing a insurance company that may go, their reinsurance program may go into our portfolio that we have. As I think about that, you know, you want basic, you want to understand the underlying product because you know that will cause losses that will flow into our portfolio, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. determ that's determined that that's the causality. And we often don't have to think too much about some of the more interesting aspects of causality, such as confounders, like we're seeing an outcome, but we're not sure what thing actually caused, if it was a, the thing we're modeling or a, you know, secret third thing that isn't being modeled, yep. uh, actually causing it. And those are the interesting aspects of causality. So in, in a lot of the bread and butter stuff that I do, causality is fairly straightforward. And we're pretty fortunate mm -hmm. in that. And the when causality starts mattering is when we start like taking apart insurance programs and asking, why did they behave a certain way? Mm -hmm. Why did we have certain losses? And we uncover things we didn't expect. Or we, let me tell a story actually about Please. causality and nonlinearity from my earlier career when I worked in primary insurance briefly. I had the president of the company come to our risk team and say, we are seeing declination rates vary pretty wildly from his point of view week to week. And at times, the declaration rates are quite high. The, the policy applicants who were being declined insurance, and this was a health-related insurance product. And he said, basically, is this a quality issue with my underwriters, or is this something else? How can we tell? And I'm like, aha, actually, I know how to think about this. I'll build a logistic regression, and I'll look at the applicant properties, things like age, do they smoke, do they have a heart condition, stuff that's captured in our underwriting system. And I'll calculate the probability of them being declined. 
And then we'll look at a group of them. And also I'll build this as a logistic regression and I can put based on my regression can back into some confidence bands and we'll say a given weak cohort should have this declination rate based on, you know, averaging out the declination of all the, or summing together the probability of all of them and putting a confidence band around it. And we'll plot each week with its confidence band and plot then the actual declination and see does the actual declination ever get outside of the confidence band of my logistic regression that I built. And I didn't have just age and I had like five or six variables in there. And what we found was one time the actual declination rate was outside of those error bands. We had roughly, I forget, like a, a year of data and my confidence bands were 95, 95th percentile. Well, hell, we're doing great, right? I would have expected that we would have had one in 20. So at least a couple over the course of a 52 weeks would have been outside of those error bands just based on random noise, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, my conclusion was there's no evidence that the underwriting process is unstable. So that means that, but we also saw the expected move up and down, which means the characteristics of the underlying cohort from week to week were changing dramatically enough that our expectation of the declination rate was moving around. And I went and looked at it and unshockingly, what it is, is the declination rate function relate to age is exponential. So the probability of being declined at age 80 is more than double at be age 40, right? At 40, yeah. you almost can't be declined. And at 80, you almost can't be written, right? It's the probability of declination goes up exponentially. That blows our intuition. So we could have things like a handful of very old people in a given week, and that slams the expected, or I guess increases the expected declination rate. So that move was not intuitive to someone just looking at like the average age. Once again, this is that story of averages versus first moment versus second moment versus third moment. The head of the president of the organization had looked at the first moment, but the average age is hardly changing. And we're like, yeah, well, those few young people don't make up for those few really old people that you get in a certain week. Exactly. Because the difference between a 20-year-old and a 40-year-old is almost indistinguishable in terms of declination rate. Both of them are yeah. really low. And then you get a handful of really old people and it blows everything up. And there's kind of two stories here. One is that story about how that non-linearity blows up our intuition. That was the causal factor causing these numbers to move around. And the actually, what's joyous about this at this point in my life that wasn't joyous at the time is nobody listened to me. Mm. And the reason nobody listened to me is I made a fundamental analyst error. I had a variable in my regression that wasn't very important, but I left it in there and I didn't understand it. And when I explained it, the president of the company was like, I don't think that's what that variable means. And he calls up the head of underwriting, puts him on speakerphone with me in there presenting this. And he's like, tell me what this factor in your database means. And it wasn't exactly what I said. And basically, it was an ad hominem fallacy where he's like, well, you're full of shit about this variable. Probably your old analysis is full of shit. Mm. And effectively kind of wrapped up the meeting with generally disregarding the work I did. Well, that was a little disappointing at young me old me relishes in telling the story because I learned an important lesson about 
basically make sure you understand absolutely everything in your regression or in your model before you start sharing about it because you do not want to learn that you're wrong when it really matters. So any whoever owns in the business every metric that you have in any model, make sure you sit down with them one-on-one -on -one and go through your results and, and explain your understanding of what these different fields or different metrics means and ask them to confirm whether you're right or wrong, right? That was a huge career lesson for me, sucked at the time, but I learned something pretty important, right? Nonlinear functions, their importance, also understanding every variable in your model and discussing it with the business owner before you start drawing conclusions, also very valuable. Yeah, and this also, I think, builds trust and credibility. And back to a question, something we discussed earlier, is when you're communicating decisions or communicating modeling outputs to decision makers, the fact that you've yeah. incorporated their knowledge and domain expertise into it is incredibly important, both culturally and in terms of the information you need and have. I appreciate that insight into how you, you think about causality more generally. I think, um, you know, it's probably worth mentioning, as you and I have discussed before, us humans seem too good at thinking causally where we think causation is happening where it, it isn't at all and horrible at thinking probabilistically in a lot of ways. And there are, you know, evolutionary arguments going back to the savannah or wherever we were where we didn't really need to think probabilistically, but causation was super important. But something I thought to mention here, because we are talking about probability and causation is something that Edwin Jaynes uh, wrote in his paper, Clearing Up Mysteries, the Original Goal. I'm actually going to include this in the show notes and in the YouTube chat. And this was actually one of Bayes's. I'm actually going to read you. I'm like, you know this, JD. I haven't announced this publicly, but I'm actually working on a, on a book currently on Bayesian inference and probabilistic programming okay. with my good friend and colleague, Eric Ma, who people may know. But this is from a, a chapter we're working on in this book is one of Bayes's keen insights in answering the inverse problem. So this is going from the probability of A given B to the probability mm -hmm. of B given A, right? Mm -hmm. Such as the probability of a model or an estimate given data to the probability of data given an estimate, right? But one of Bayes' keen insights was actually to decouple probability and causation. So until Bayes came on the scene and made sense to talk of P of E1 given E2, the probability of an event E1 occurring knowing that E2 occurred only if E1 occurred after E2. But Bayes' solution to the inverse problem now meant that it makes sense to talk about the other way around, independent of both temporal and causal order. So you can actually talk about conditional probabilities when temporal and causal order are unimportant. Now, Edwin Jaynes, in all his genius, came up with a, a wonderfully simple example. He said, you have an urn in this paper, you have an urn containing five red balls and five white balls randomly mixed. You take out one ball, B1, and it's white. You take out a second ball, B2. What is the probability that B2 is white? Okay. Now, a few fractions and probabilities or whatever will tell you it's four over nine or whatever it is, right? Okay. So because we know there are four balls and five white balls, uh, five, four white balls and five red balls in the urn before you draw B2. Okay. Now he then asks a second related but distinct question. You have an urn containing five red balls, five white balls, randomly mixed. You take out one ball, B1, and do not look at it. You take out a second ball, B2, and it is white. What is the probability that the first ball is white? Okay. So this seems, still seems counterintuitive to me. How can the color of the second ball impact the color of the first ball? It makes no sense at all because there's no temporal or causal relationship between it. 
And so we know the color of B2 cannot causally impact the color of B1, but the color of B2 does provide information about the distribution of colors across the other balls and then does tell us, does tell us something about the color of B1. Uh, And this is Monty Hall in another I'm just going to say, this is just the Monty Hall, right? Which I had had lots of like creative ways to try to explain the Monty Hall problem. And a buddy of mine that I work with in Bermuda, Trevor Leach, looks at me and he's like, Basically, you're making this too hard. Think about the extreme case. Imagine you had a hundred doors and you've already made your choice and we're going to open 99 of those. And so there's mm. only, or 97 of those or whatever. So there's two left. The one you picked or two others. Do you switch now? And it's so much more obvious that there's information flow when you pick an extreme, when you make it very extreme. When you take out a whole bunch of options, that gets lost in the subtlety of the Monty Hall problem or the Monty Hall game. And similarly here, like the reason we know it's a Monty Hall problem is we we say to ourselves or those of us who think about these classes of problems, right? You say to yourself of, is information revealed that impacts what I know? And there's a difference between what I know versus what is causal or what's Mm. causing, right? And that's the distinction you drew out there, which I think is really cool and a neat way to illustrate that. Yeah, absolutely. So there are two final things I'd like to discuss. Do you have a hard stop on the hour or can we go slightly over? No, let's party. All right. Let's go all night. Lionel Richie. Came here to party. Exactly. (laughs) So the two things I want to talk about, we'll get to tools because I think, I just think thinking through what type of tools you use and how you even evaluate tools and the surface area of the tooling space is pretty wild and fractal-esque at the moment. But before we get there, something we've been talking around a lot is modeling. And I want to be explicit. So a huge part of decision-making just involves modeling the real world, right? Um, right. Either explicitly or implicitly, right? Exactly. Implicit. Everybody makes models in their heads. That's what, yep. you know, that's what we do. And there's strong evidence from what I can tell reading the literature that, that basically that's one of the things that makes humans humans is the sophistication of our mental modeling yeah. uh, of the world around us. We could almost be homo modelicus as opposed to homo it. economicus, right? With the, the, the animals that make models of the, and predictive models at that mm. in our heads. And then some of us explicitly make those models outside of our head rather yeah. than just using the implicit ones. And- so there are a lot of things that go in, and that's one of the reasons I like Bayesian analysis and say I'm probably a Bayesian. You can never be sure, though, can you? Well, right? <laughs> if you are, you're, you're not you're a not Bayesian. It's right. the Cretan right. Bayesian paradox or something, yeah. the probabilistic Bayesian paradox. But because it, when I do Bayesian inference, I have to make my assumptions explicit, and I think that's worthwhile. What are the most important parts of building models and that we kind of need to check ourselves on as well? Yeah. So the biggest mistake I see is complexity too much. There's a ridiculous amount of problems that can be solved. You know, the economist in me wants to make this all sophisticated sounding. We need a parsimonious model. Mm. Like really what we're saying is make a simple model. And a biggest mistake I see over and over is comparing a sophisticated model to no model at all. And that's a huge bullshit red flag. And the reason it's a bullshit red flag is we never have no model. We have some model, right? Like even weather forecasting, I can take, say, just today's weather is going to be like yesterday. That's a model, right? It's a lag one day model. 
And someone comes along and they're like, oh, our model is so much better than having no model at all. Like, well, does it beat today's weather is going to be like yesterday? Well, what about Mm. today's weather is going to be like this date averaged over history, right? So that'd be a climatological model saying the the weather today is the average, right? And so you've got to compare what's your lift or your improvement over these stupid, basic, model that has no sophistication, right? And if you're going to introduce something that's complicated, complex, you maybe even can't explain how it works, it sure as hell better give you a lot of lift over the stupid model, like the average or the look back one time period model, these stupid models, you better be able to dramatically outperform them in order to pay for the care and feeding of your sophisticated model. And Mm. that mistake is the one I see being made the most, right? Absolutely. And something I'm also hearing in there is, once again, my Bayesian mind is going, Jains Mm -hmm. among others, very sophisticated Bayesians in the 20th century, made it very apparent that part of the formulation of of Bayesian inference is that all probabilities are conditional on some form of information you have. So when I've said that to people, they've said, oh, what about when I flip a coin? That it's 50% chance heads, 50 tails. What That's not conditional on anything. And I mean, how do you develop that model that that will be the case? It's not only through empirical observation, although it could be, it's actually through thinking through the physics of the situation that when you flip a coin, that the weight is symmetric on both sides, something about the wind, something about how it lands, these types of things. So there is all types of information and assumptions you're saying to even come out with a probability, I think. Just Uh, a whole bunch of time, we kind of can assume those away, right? Because they practically don't matter. And this is like where, when I have conversations with philosophers, I often just am like, that was interesting, right? That was an interesting set of mental gymnastics we just did. How does one use that? Because yep. I am so applied in Absolutely. my thinking, right? frustratingly so, to people who want to spend a lot of time with minutia on details. And I'm like, but, you know, I've got to make these kind of gross decisions, these big, you know, decisions that aren't fine cutting with a scalpel. And this is like where I got, I probably put too little weight on like Kaggle competitions to being informative to skill Mm -hmm. because of my experience with those. I did one, the first one I did had something to do with insurance and I got to, I was like absolute middle of the pack and I looked at it and I'm like, okay, the spread between me and the perfect person is so small that the thing we're trying to decide that wouldn't have like a hundred dollars difference in an insurance company, like we're done. Yeah. Like this project was done four iterations ago. Yep. Like this is absolutely zero marginal value for applied decision making. Yet we're going to carry on acting like all of these people whose scores are different in the third and fourth decimal point. Like this means something when this yep. is absolutely immaterial and complete noise. And I don't give a shit. And yep. like that was the last time I looked at Kaggle. And I probably wrote it off to quickly, but it was this problem with separating what's a meaningful distinction, not just a measurable distinction. Because I'm very big on give me a meaningful decision, not a measurable distinction. And I think in the example I just gave it a meaningful distinction, which I mean, it's partially a joke, but I think will speak to your practical concerns, which are very important. If you have a weighted coin, Right. Mm-hmm. Which right. the joke is there are no bias coins. So why do we keep giving this, this example? The one bias coin you'd think of would be a weighted coin. And there, that's when a model assumption breaks down and you can Absolutely. make poor predictions based on it. So we need to or, check our, or all our assumptions, point. right? Totally brilliant. Right. 
And Absolutely. you know, we mentioned we invoked Taleb earlier, right? This was the thing that his character, I think it's Fat Tony, in mm. his fooled by randomness and Black Swan, the thing Fat Tony would figure out that the eggheads wouldn't is like if he's playing the street game and it goes against him two or three times, he doesn't have near enough Bayesian inference to change his opinion, but he's going to flip the table over and be like, you're hustling me. Yeah. Right. Cause he knows, you know, kind of intuitively when the fix is in. Right. And, and so what we're really talking about is street a little smarts. bit of that, that street yeah. smarts. Yeah. Of, Oh, we can always assume that the coin is fair until it's not. <laughs> so let's talk tools. You're one of my friends who works in R and Python and AWS, yep. of course. Yep. And you're author of the second edition of the R cookbook. Did I get that? Correct. That's correct. Cool. Yep. Second edition. Um, Paul Tudor did the first edition. Yep. And when we did the rewrite to make it tidy using the tidy verse, I did the rewrite and he's my co-author then did all the review on it. So yeah. Awesome. Deep into so, R and Python. So yeah. Tell us about the tools you use, what you're excited about and how you think about even, there are so many new tools coming on on the scene, how you think about it, like evaluating them is more than a full-time job as well. Oh, so, geez. Yeah. And I know, advice I spend... for people, what tools to use? There are, there are 10, I've done the worst job. The, the one yeah. thing you don't do as an interview, ask 10 questions at once. So but... the whole interviewer shtick is ask one question at a time, yeah. right? So you, just you gave me five. Good, good yeah, job. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's back up. How do we think about tools? If I'm working solo, my choice of tools is less meaningful. Most of us don't work solo. And I did a whole bunch of actually my work, even within companies where I was part of a team, because of the way those teams were organized, I was a bit of an autonomous unit in a team. So there wasn't a lot of interaction. We each were, we'd talk about what we were doing, but we each owned whole projects and moved them forward. So we we're fairly autonomous inside the organization. So I did a lot of art because I really like the defaults of the tidyverse and I like DB plier, how it abstracts away and I don't have to switch between SQL and, and mm. D plier code. Like, I think that's all really great and makes me super effective writing fast code and I can get to answers quickly. And that was great. I'm not a software developer. I'm not a particularly skilled programmer. I do it because it helps me get to an answer. But as soon as I started working and largely also when I hired analysts to work for me, we had to kind of rally around the flag on what are we going to be writing in? Because I wanted them to be able to move code between different analysts and share a code base and use common methods and even literally shared libraries for functionality. And most of the rest of the team was writing Python. So mm. it was a no-brainer, right? This is Makes a sense. network effect problem. The network effect is way stronger than any individual factor. So while if but while on an island, I'm a little faster and more productive with R and Tidyverse. If I'm getting my benefit from being part of a network, that network of everybody else is more proficient in Python, I switch to Python. And yep. that's what I largely have done when I'm working in that team context. Now, if I sit down to just you know hammer out a quick example or to teach myself something, we hadn't really talked about it. We've alluded to it about building models sometimes to train us. A lot of times, you know, I'll do that quickly in, in R because it's more my native tongue, if you will. And the Python, I have to Google more. It's not a lot of work, but it's mm -hmm. a little bit more friction. But I, you know, the team uses Python, and when I'm doing code there, I'm writing Python for the analytical team that I'm on. And largely we use any number of these tools. 
I'm moving on to another part of your question. The I love question it. I was going to ask it, and you're, you're already there. <laughs> Asking myself the questions. Exactly. What I mean, you're doing my job. I'm going to find I'm glad, myself. I'm glad to, you threw five questions at me, so I got to do what oh. I can here. So the next part of it is that, okay, about learning new tools. The That should be necessity-driven. So the advice about premature optimization, premature optimization is the root of all kinds of evil or whatever. I don't remember the exact quote. Don't start switching tools, platforms, frameworks, all this until you got a problem that needs it. That's a problem I see a lot of folks doing, right? Like, oh, we'll use this shiny new thing because it's shiny new thing. No, you're just introducing complexity and you may be using a tool that your team doesn't use. And we've already established the network effects of everybody using the same set of tools is actually mm -hmm. what makes the team most more productive. So you got it. You want to bogart those network effects. So use common tools and then add new tooling when you have a problem that is solved by that new tooling or when you have a class of problems that you need new tooling. So if everything works at a reasonable speed in Pandas or R Tidyverse or whatever your team is using, cruise, like just keep chugging along doing what you're doing mm. and add more tooling if, for example, the new tooling reduces the complexity of what you're doing. So, you know, if you have, if you're an analyst type and you're writing God help us, a bloom filter or something like that, you shouldn't be. You should be using a library that has that built into it. So mm -hmm. cut all that garbage out of your code and use that from a library or something, right? That would be an example of adopting a tool because it removes complexity and says somebody else can maintain that code or some open source project or some vendor can maintain that code, not me. That's a great return on return on tooling, right? Or you say, gosh, I can't read this entire parquet file into memory that I have on my machine because pandas can't hold this whole thing. What do I do? That's a problem DuckDB solves or Polars, for example. Like those are a couple of projects that I'm pretty keen on right now. So you might say, okay, we're going to introduce one of these two because I have a class of problem that this solves. And Largely, life is, in my experience, analytical life is stumbling along using the tools you know until you bang your head on a problem that you either can't do efficiently or can't do at all or can't do it fast enough with the tooling you have. And then you stop and you say, okay, what's my real problem here? You isolate the problem. And then you say, what are the selection of tools I have out here in the universe that might solve this specific problem? And then you Go, you try to figure out which one of those would be the right solution for you. Right. I think it being based on necessity is mm -hmm. incredibly important. How do you think about this? I mean, DuckDB is a great example because it's several years old, but not super mature yet. It's incredibly useful right. for the use case that you suggested. But how do you even, you know, all marketing pages look the same for all tools and all companies, like give or take. So how yeah. do you think through actually finding the right tool for the job? So this is where it's like we become a type of filter. And, you know, I follow, as you know, well know, I'm following a lot of folks on Twitter and I read a lot of information mm. there. I read a number of blogs and information that flows through a number of blog sources. The vendor stuff is notoriously bad because it's just the signal noise ratio is off in mm -hmm. most vendor literature. So I watch the social media, the blogosphere, and I'm filtering. Like, I swear the thing I do efficiently is just filter, right? Like, that just doesn't matter. This, mm -hmm. is, Oh, wait a second. 
this is kind of interesting. And I also have a network of trusted friends who will shoot me a text message about, have you seen this? You know, or we're trading emails or we're in the group chat at work. So once again, a network effect of trusted people who are also filtering lots of different sources, right? And saying, is this interesting? Should we look at this? How hard would this be to replace that problem? And like these conversations are going on in my life over in the sidebar, like literally daily, like constantly Mm. through the day. So we have to filter huge amounts of information. And what we'll find on a team is there are people like myself who are like highly tapped into social networks. And that's kind of interesting. And so we do a lot of that. And we become like folks who stream information into the larger group. And then there are other people, like some of the folks on my team, the very idea of having to keep up with all the internal chat at our company makes them feel swimmy headed, much less Twitter and blogs and all this other stuff. So they're not synthesizing as much external information, but they're probably more likely to build a POC a proof of concept with some piece of tech that I pull in or to help me see a use for it. Or they're perfect for me to sit down after I've refined a handful of interesting technology, sit down with me and help me make sense of them. So I'm a big fan of people in teams, right? People in teams are amazingly more effective than individuals. And that's an example of me and some of the folks I work with having very different proclivities towards filtering information and pulling in new stuff. So that's a big chunk. Now, the other thing, right? And and I'm speaking at the upcoming Vicky Boydkiss's norm conf on the topic of, of subtractive thinking. Now, by saying it, I've kind of given away the punchline in a bunch of my presentation, but I think hmm. I'll be okay. One of the things one has to do before you try to match tooling to your problem is you got to isolate your problem. And this is a mistake I see folks making over and over is they don't fundamentally isolate what is the bottleneck or the problem in what I'm trying to do. Yep. You know, they come in with 400 lines of code and are like, this isn't fast. And it's like, well, my first question is, what in there is it fast? Because you're doing like 100 things. Where's your bottleneck? And if we can isolate the bottleneck, and then we make a simplified example that shows the data that flows in, it shows the bottleneck, and it shows what is supposed to be produced, and we have a reproducible, simple example, then we can ask the question, what other ways might we solve this problem? Or how might we solve this problem quicker? But we had to get it out of the 500 lines of spaghetti over here get it in like a notebook cell or two notebook cells, showing input, showing output. And then we can do a a couple of things that really are damn near magic. And that's show it to lots of people. The incredible effectiveness of sharing your problems with people on your team once they've been narrowed down. Like, I mean, I guess we should back up a step. The back up a step is once you narrow it down, it's rubber duck debucking, right? The process Mm. of narrowing it down is like explaining it to the rubber duck. You discover, oh, that matrix is sparse. I bet if we change the way we store it, it'd be a lot smaller. And that size change in and of itself might solve our problem. Let's try that. And you discover by yourself things. The next part is you have it isolated. You maybe even try a couple of different ways in a notebook of solving your problem. And you begin to shop it around to your team. And they will see things you didn't see. Or you run it by me. And I'm like... Did you know Polar's now does streaming off disk? 
And they're like, no, I didn't know that. I'm like, well, yeah, they just added it. Maybe we try polars here for speed and let's benchmark it against Duck and see which we like and why, what the trade-offs are. And we have a simplified notebook where we can implement both of those solutions right there in the notebook and share it with the rest of the team. So we're sharing not just the problem, but then we share what we learned. What we have done then is we've made use of this network effect that is hidden to a lot of people. They don't see the value of getting little pieces of well-defined problems. So very little startup cost. I didn't have to understand some huge problem. I can just look at this code and think about it and help my colleagues solve problems or they can help solve my problems. And this is the you know reproducible example problem. And I've spoken at the uh, New York our meetup about how to do a good reproducible example because it is such i feel like an underappreciated skill but it's the first part of it is an exercise in subtraction subtract everything that's there besides the little piece you're having a problem with and get that isolated and then you shop it around your team and if you can't solve it there well you replace the inputs with random numbers so that there's no propriety information in there And then all of a sudden, you've got something you can put on Stack Overflow, right? Or you can post it on Twitter and say, we've found this problem to be unsolvable. And you'll have a solution, you know, in 15, 20 minutes, in my experience. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But the exercise in reducing it down, right, is the tech skill there. Absolutely. So to wrap up, we've talked about this in a variety of terms, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on, we always think about us training models, but how can we help models or use models to train us in ways of thinking? This is one of my pet topics. I'm glad you found time for it because this is one of the things on the journey of an analyst that is effective well beyond what it seems like it has any right being. And what we're talking about is creating toy models, often in a notebook or a simplified script, that build analyst intuition about how something works in the world. And any number of times I have had analysts bring up a question about, okay, I've done this and I've done this and done this. Does this answer make sense? And I'm like, you tell me, Mm. what jumps out at you? Well, I don't really have any intuition about what could happen. Okay, I got to tell you, I don't either. So here's what I would do though. I would create a test simplified data set using random numbers, and I would do this convolution, that convolution, this, and then measure what you get on the outside. That will be a similar type problem, but simplified. And see if that gives you enough intuition to check the thing you're seeing over here. or And come back and teach me, because I don't actually have intuition around that either. And I must tell one of our analysts to build a toy model multiple times a year. It'll come up of, of, hey, have you tried just building a simple model of that? Mm. One of my favorites, like, is I try to help analysts build intuition around correlation. So if you have two log normal distributions and we can pick parameters for those log normal distributions, right? So I got a long right tail because they're log, log normal and say, what is the most correlation you can induce between those? And they're like, oh, well, positive one, right? Okay. What's the least? correlation, the most negative correlation. And it's like, what now? Well, is it negative one? Can't do it. Take them, sort one forward and sort the other one reversed and measure their correlation. 
oh, now you're on the road to discovery. Mm. <laughs> you're about to build a bunch of intuition about yep. what is possible, how much correlation can two skewed distributions have if they have skew in the same direction, how much negative correlation they have. And it's like, oh, wow, just let you know, nobody taught this in school. Yeah, they mm. had no reason to. But if you're in, say, insurance or reinsurance and your whole world is long right tail distributions, You've got to build all this intuition about these really weird things like maximum negative correlation between two highly skewed distributions. And the easiest way to learn that is start playing reindeer games in a Jupyter notebook or an R script and testing, plotting, looking at the results, having the aha moment, huge benefit to building intuition. And this is all... A may have told this story to you before, but this was how I taught myself probability and statistics because the abstract formulas I was being taught in college didn't stick. Mm. I'm very much like I back into the formula kind of based on what I understand. And a bunch of this just didn't resonate with me. And so I started building little stochastic models. I didn't know they were stochastic models, little random number models in Excel in college. And basically, you know, discovered Monte Carlo simulation to teach myself a lot of these statistical formula or probability formulas. And now I encourage our analysts to go do that, right? And, and to build up even a catalog internally of these little toy models to teach this to their peers, right? It's a great way. Use the model to train the intuition of the analyst, not just use smart analysts to build good models. That direction isn't the only direction the learning can flow. It can flow backwards. Absolutely. And we can actually bring this full circle to Nassim Taleb's book, Fooled by Randomness, in which yep. he's full of thought experiments, which are simulations. And he may use the term Monte Carlo simulation at some point, which I've done in Python. Others may have done it in R, but it's thinking, he's, he's thinking about survivorship bias. And if you've got, for example, a bunch of people, business owners or hedge fund managers or whatever it is, telling you how they were successful. Anyone telling you about success, there's some sort of survivorship bias, right? And so he gives the example, if you have, let's say, 10,000 investment fund managers who are just making decisions based on flipping coins and making or losing money based on it, given a large enough N, large enough sample size of fund managers, in the end, after a certain amount of steps, some of them will be quite wealthy, right? And if they tell right. you all the ways that they made decisions and how they succeeded, you are actually, you do have survivorship bias there. And the point of this story is that you can do that using we've developed a mental model and then you can turn it into a mathematical model using NumPy for random number simulation or so, something on those lines. And you can see that actually play out using Matplotlib and plotting it, for example, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there's any number of academic papers that have been conceptually this, like showing that we can build a simulation where this thing could have happened based on these sets of probabilities. Now we're not saying for sure that that's what happened, but it could yep. have been right. It's a plausible path. Exactly. JD, it's time to wrap up. I'd like to thank everyone for joining who Absolutely. popped in and out through the session. And we've had a bunch of people here and engage. And thank you for all your great questions and comments. Most of all, I'd like to thank my guest of honor, JD Long, for having and inspiring me for such a generative conversation. I always love talking with you, my friend, and I always learn so much. So thank you as well. well it's been a load of fun. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And thanks for sticking around to the end of the episode. I would honestly love to hear from you about what resonates with you in the show, what doesn't, and anybody you'd like to hear me speak with, along with topics you'd like to hear more about. The best way to let me know currently is on Twitter, at Vanishing Data is the podcast handle, and I'm at Hugo Bound. See you in the next episode.